Hello and welcome everyone to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, And today on the program, we throw down this gauntlet. Science doesn't have all the answers. Science might not ever get all the answers. It's a dangerous thing when you say that science can give all the answers. Dangerous and unscientific. Because science itself can prove that science can't prove everything. Should I say that again? Science can prove that science can't prove everything. Uh, We talk a lot on this scientifically-minded show about what we humans know and some things that we don't know yet, the gaps that researchers are laboring to fill in even as we speak. But today uh, we are going to talk about what we can't know with this guy. My name is Nassim Yanovsky. I'm a professor in Brooklyn College. I'm a professor in the computer department. My Ph.D. is in math. And I just wrote this book called The Outer Limits of Reason, What Science, Mathematics, and Logic Cannot Tell Us. Now, let's face it. We live at a time when the authority of science has become something of an ideological football. So maybe it's not so surprising that when people hear about a book purporting to tell us what science cannot tell us, the reactions are, shall we say, spirited. I get lots of emails every day. I generated a lot of discussion or anger or happiness. Perhaps you, dear listener, are already lining up on one side or the other. Maybe you're ready to cheer as scientific hubris gets its comeuppance. Or maybe you feel duty-bound to defend the sovereignty of science and to question the loyalties of one Professor Yanofsky. Well, if it's questioning you want, you just sit back and chill, because I will do it for you. Are you a traitor to reason, Nussin? No. No, absolutely not. This is a pro-science book. You know, I'm not one of these people that say, hey, you know, this shows you science is limited, therefore science, you know, we should throw it out. No, absolutely not. In fact, all the results I discuss are reason. In other words, it's not my intuition says that science is somehow limited. It's science saying that science is somehow limited mathematics coming out and telling what the boundaries of mathematics are. So, no, I am not a traitor to reason at all. Science is one of the only things which can tell what its limitations are, and this book is just a listing of these scientific results saying, hey, we can't know this, we can't do this, we can't do that in a reasonable amount of time. Well, I have to say you're talking to an easy audience in me because I've always had great respect for people who say, I don't know or I can't know. Right. I think people are afraid to say, I don't know or I can't know, and some current scientists and authors do not say, I don't know enough. Science doesn't have all the answers. Science might not ever get all the answers. It's a dangerous thing when you say that science can give all the answers. And it's a dangerous thing when you can't say, I don't know, because it closes off discussion. You have to be a little bit open-minded. So when you say you've gotten some angry responses to the book, are are those people, though, who feel as though you're somehow questioning the integrity or the utility of science? Oh, most of the responses have been extremely positive. But some responses have been, just like you said, you've betrayed science. You're giving in to the anti-science people. You're giving in to the um, irrationalist, et cetera, et cetera. Um, some have gone the other way and said, look, you know, this book, I, you know, you know, this is just pure reason. There's no heart, oh. which, is, which oh. is not true either. Oh, I want to argue your case on that one. I'll do it for you. Because there's so much heart in the book um, compared to a lot of books that treat some of these subjects. Uh, you put the acknowledgments up front as opposed to burying them at the end. Right. And they're kind of touching and interesting, personal anecdotes. And then, of course, you end. Um, well, I'm not going to give away the ending. We'll, we'll, we'll reach the ending, but... I just want to say that that is a completely uh, baseless accusation. (laughs) (laughs) No, um, I I thank you. And in fact, the people who do criticize that, I always tell them, read the last three paragraphs of the book or read the acknowledgement. You'll see see what I mean. I, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time in this book and I put a lot of effort. I did put a lot of heart into it also. So criticism is either coming that I've betrayed science or that I'm too scientific. And then there's another criticism that I got a lot, and and that's because I, something I said in the beginning of the book that defending science, I said science is the only thing that progresses in human culture. In other words, you can use science or technology as a way of measuring things. 
uh, measuring how much a, a, a civilization progressed. So cars today go faster than they did 10 years ago because we progressed. You know, cell phones are smaller than they were um, 10 years ago. As opposed to that, other things such as literature and you know, morality and art, literature doesn't build on itself. And uh, art doesn't necessarily build on itself. In, in fact, in some sense, you know, art has to be novel. It has to be different than what it was before. And, um, you know, if you say Shakespeare and Dante are the greatest literature minds, well, those were 400, 500 years ago. Oh, but wait, Fifty Shades of Grey, come on. <laughs> no offense to Fifty Shades of Grey, but it won't be read in 50 years. It's not, <laughs> it's not timeless. There'll have to be somebody new coming up with new stuff. Right. Um, so people got upset with that. And, and I, I, I defended myself, or I defend myself by saying, look, you know, there are different things. There's art and literature and morality. That's one thing. And there's science. And science has a property that these other things don't have. Namely, they improve. I mean, you can't say that human beings have improved morally when we're coming out of the 20th century, which was probably the bloodiest, most horrifying century of all time. Well, you know, I'll, I'll only note that in my interview with Steven Pinker about his book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, right. uh, Why Violence Has Declined, he makes a case, a big, fat case, actually, with tons of evidence that, you know, yes, the 20th century had its perturbations, but in general, the graph has been tending toward less and less violence and more and more sort of universal uh, humanitarian feeling over time. Right. Uh, so, you know, the argument has been made. Let's just say that. Right, and and I got to say, when I read that book, I hope he's right. Yeah, yeah, me too. But I I, I just <laughs> doubt it. <laughs> but anyways, um, as science progressed and as science built on previous science, it was able to see some of its own limitations, mm -hmm. and that's what this book is all about. Right, and I was curious about why you were attracted to this subject, and then it occurred to me that you know part of your specialty is computer science. Right. A science that is relatively new, one of the youngest sciences, right. and almost from its birth back in the, what, 1930s or so, was already describing its own limitations. That's one of the most amazing things. I mean, um, Alan Turing, who was considered, I guess, in some sense, the grandfather of computer science, proved in the 1930s, before there was any computer, before the ENIAC and before all these, he proved what a computer cannot do. <laughs> and, and, and that's just that's mind-boggling. You know, before engineers and, and scientists were able to make real live computers, he already showed what computers cannot do. And here we are 80 years later, and I, I still teach Turing's theorem showing what computers cannot do, even though our computers are millions and millions of times better than what came out in the early 40s. Um, the, he proved certain boundaries that things cannot do go beyond them. Can you describe for us just really briefly and non-technically what he, he did prove with this oh, thing sure, called sure. the halting problem? So sometimes you, 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 you're running a computer and, and somehow it gets stuck. And, you know, sometimes on top it says not responding. And so that means it's kind of in an infinite loop. So Turing asked the following thing. Can I build a computer that shows when another program will go into an infinite loop. In other words, I want to avoid these infinite loops. Can I find a computer to you know, look at other programs and tell whether or not this program will go into an infinite loop? Now, you have to understand that these computer programs are sometimes millions of lines of code long, and so human beings have a hard time doing it. But it would be nice for a computer to be able to tell whether or not um, it can do it. And Turing showed, no, a computer cannot do that. You know, computers might be able to help you predict the weather, and computers might be able to uh, calculate taxes, and computers might be able to, you know, listen into every phone call um, in the United States, but they're not going to be able to do this task of telling when a computer will halt or go into an infinite loop. And no computer, no matter how powerful and no matter how long it has to try to run this calculation, could ever do this thing. Could ever do this. Now, there's a pure mathematical proof, and I go through that in the book, but just an intuition. You know, Bill Gates would love to have such a program, mm -hmm. so he would put all his products into this program and make sure that his products never go into an infinite loop. And Windows would be so much better. And Windows would be so much better. And Bill Gates has, you know, I don't know, 35,000 people working for him in Microsoft, and yet Bill Gates cannot do it. Not because he doesn't have the best and the brightest. He does have the best and the brightest, but they can't do it because it cannot be done. Why can't it be done? 
Okay, so the core of this book is something called self-referential paradoxes. In other words, things talking about itself. For example, this sentence is false. It's an English sentence. It's a legitimate English sentence. And if you say it's true, then it's false. <laughs> and if you say it's false, it's true. This is the liar's paradox. This is the liar's paradox. Okay, now, what's going on there? And the answer is, you know, usually you have English sentences talking about, you know, um, something else. So, the grass is green. That's an English sentence about grass. Uh, the sun is shining. That's an English sentence about the sun. But sometimes you could have an English sentence talking about itself. So, this sentence has four words, is false. This sentence has five words, is true. That's an English sentence discussing itself. Mm -hmm. I mean, the liar paradox is two and a half thousand years old, but what people realized is when things talk about themselves, you get into trouble. You get into some type of limitation. So language is somehow faulty because you can make a sentence that's both true and false. Turing realized this, and he, he knew of, you know, the philosopher's discussion of the liar paradox, and what he said was computers can talk about themselves. So... Notice what we're asking about the halting problem. We're asking for a program to determine something about programs. Right. Okay? And so it's talking about itself. And you get into lots of trouble with that. And you get a limitation. Um, there's a famous thing in mathematics called Girdle's incompleteness. Uh -huh, I was going to get there. <laughs> right. Which, which Girdle showed a few years before Turing. They were both in Princeton at the same time. But a few years before Turing, Girdle showed that mathematics can talk about itself. And once you have mathematics talking about itself, you get into trouble. You get into limitations of mathematics. So whenever you have somebody talking about themselves, you know, uh, psychologists, you know, they, they're <laughs> thinking always about what they're thinking about. So that's, you can edit that part. Well, out. yeah, you, I'm, I'm interested, actually. Uh, I'd rather not edit it out because, you know, people, I think, listening to this might... Um, draw a link between the very limited kind of self-referentiality that you're talking about, a, a logical or mathematical puzzle. Uh, puzzle where a statement can refer back to itself and the trouble that can come of that. Right. Is there a link uh, between that sort of very specific and well-defined problem and the larger problem of self-awareness and self-description that we humans encounter all the time? Right. I, I think there is. Um... Uh, it's a little bit out of my thing. Right, but, you know, we, we never see ourselves clearly. I mean, you know, like uh, sometimes, you know, you have to wait 10 years to realize, hey, you know, I know why I made that decision now. Um, I was an idiot because I was worried about that or something like that. Um, you know, we don't have clarity about who we are, hence the word subconscious. You know, mm -hmm. we're not conscious about every single one of our desires and every single one of our um, methods of going on. So, yeah, there is something, there is some type of self-reference going back, going there. By the way, we wouldn't want to know everything what's going on in ourselves either. I mean, that would be scary. Some people want to, though. They, it's, in fact, this, you know, the larger sort of uh, philosophical or ideological debate that hangs over some of these subjects is, wouldn't it be great if science could answer all questions and fully anatomize and uh, break down everything we do? Now, I share your skepticism, <laughs> but, but some people seem to like that idea, find it very attractive. Um, I, I, it, w it would be wonderful. Uh, it would put psychologists and psychiatrists <laughs> out of business. It would, Indeed, uh, neuroscience should replace psychology, should replace literature, poetry, everything. Well... <laughs> I, I hope not. <laughs> I like literature and poetry and art. Um, but I, I don't think science is going to be there anytime soon. So uh, we don't have to worry about that. As for the theoretical question of whether or not science could ever do that, and could, ever, could we ever you know, hook up enough electrodes uh, into your brain and see you know, why, what's the deep, mysterious reason why you're doing this or doing that? Um, I don't know. I hope not. <laughs> I really do. That would be scary. Well, your book is, is full of examples of things like the halting problem that Alan Turing uh, proved can't be solved, <laughs> things that cannot be solved and in principle cannot be solved or in principle are extremely difficult to solve to the point that, you know, in practical terms, they won't be for a very, very long time, uh, if ever. Um, one of the most elegant proofs, though, if I'm any judge, and the one you just named, uh, Gödel's incompleteness theorem, Actually, there, there were two of them. 
the first and second, right? Right. But what he did, and I want you to jump in and you know apply some expertise to my ham-fisted uh, description here, but he used this kind of mind-blowing trick of taking logical statements and assigning numbers to them and then running some arithmetic on those numbers and in the course of that proving that you can produce self-contradictory statements inside of certain arithmetic systems. And thus, there are statements inside of those systems that are true. Yes, they're true, right. but they can't be proven to be true. Right. And right. He, in so doing, he blew apart a, an effort that was going on around that time, early part of the 20th century, to found all of mathematics on a self-consistent logical foundation, a perfect description of math in terms of logic that would be completely sort of self-sustaining, you know? Exactly. And Gödel sort of blew that apart. Uh, it's an amazing thing, and I, I'll let you elaborate because I just did my it, best. No, you did, you did perfectly, but I, I just want to put it in, in what we were talking about before, the liar paradox. He basically... Um, so, so mathematics can be put in, into symbolic language. I mean, that's why people don't like math, because it just looks like a bunch of symbols. Mm -hmm. uh, but these symbols can be given code numbers, and that's why symbols are on computers. We, you know, we can give a number to every symbol. And so he, he, he did that. And so what he had was mathematics, which is about numbers, written in symbols, which can be written in numbers. So again, you have that self-reference. You right. have English sentences talking about English sentences, and here you have mathematical statements about mathematical statements. And basically, he was able to show that provability is something that you can talk about. In other words, if you wanted to be very, very formal about your mathematics, you can write down a bunch of symbols and then follow step by step very carefully and see whether or not something is proved or not proved. And so the, the concept of whether or not a statement is proved will be something that you can talk about, and you can write numbers about that. Anyways, so he formulated, instead of the sentence, this sentence is false, he formulated, this mathematical statement is unprovable. Right. So now, now you take this, this is unprovable, and you ask yourself, is it true or is it false? Well, if it's false, you've got a problem. Because if I say, this statement is unprovable, and it's false, then it is provable. Right. And so you, then you get into big trouble. Um, because you have something that's false and you prove it, but that, that, that goes against the grain of what mathematics is all about. On the other hand, if it's true, then you have something shocking. You have, this statement is unprovable, and it's true. <laughs> so you can cannot prove you cannot prove it, but it's true. And so, like you said, um, there was a guy David Hilbert who wanted to formulate all of mathematics as somehow logical and and show that it's 100 percent consistent and do that all within mathematics. And Gödel said, no, you cannot do that. Mathematicians work with proof. And there are going to be many, many statements that are going to be true, but they cannot be proven. And I think, again, to an outsider, a non-mathematician like myself, uh, when I first learned about Gödel, I thought, isn't that everything that mathematics has to be? Doesn't everything have to be provable? And when Gödel proved that there are things that are unprovable, and yet they're, they're vital parts of any mathematical system, well, I shouldn't say any mathematical system. He was applying this to s certain restricted kinds of arithmetic systems, right? But, right. But, but doesn't that topple the whole edifice of mathematics? But it doesn't. No, no it doesn't because, and, and just like my book doesn't, you know, I bring up the limitations. This is a limitation of mathematics. There are going to be certain things that are going to be true, but unprovable. But there's a hell of a lot of things that are true and provable. So that's what mathematicians spend a hell of a lot of time doing. They're trying to prove theorems that are provable. No mathematician is trying to prove everything. So if a mathematician was trying to prove everything, Gödel tells him, no, that can't be done. But you find your little corner of mathematics, and you try to prove as many theorems as you want. And there's a constant feeling someone was once telling me that, you know, a mathematician is trying to prove a theorem, and he tries, and he tries, and he tries, and he tries, and he tries many times, and it doesn't go. And so he automatically he says, oh, you know what? This must be a sentence that Gödel was talking about. It's unprovable. I can't prove it. But, of course, most of the time that doesn't happen. Um, most theorems that people try to prove, you know, are not Gödel's type sentences. Although what Gödel was saying was, there is a boundary. You will not be able to prove everything. 
Now, I just have to say one thing about Gödel's, Gödel's theorem. People have taken it way out of proportion. They've taken it to mean that every system of knowledge is right. necessarily incomplete. Right. Right? That there's holes in every system. That, that, that there's holes in every system. And Gödel's result is not only about numbers, it's about many logical systems. And by the way, I, I, I suspect many systems are incomplete, but, but people have taken it, you know, like a strange way and, and you know, come up with theological proofs using Gödel's theorem and, and, <laughs> and stuff like that. Um, and it's not really true. There are probably holes in our knowledge in many different systems, but I'm not sure Gödel's theorem is the one that expresses it. Have you read his original um, proof? Um, nope. I own it, but I haven't <laughs> read it. No, it was, it's too long. And um, it's, it's been cleaned up a lot uh, since he's done it. Um, uh-huh. I, I'm not sure one would gain much by going back to the original. I mean, there are a lot of other people that have, have uh, proven it and used it, you know, and I'm not sure, you know, it's, again, it's 70 years old, and, and people have seen deeper into it in, in some sense. I mean, he was a great, great man, and he was the first to prove it, but... I'm not. I, I wouldn't recommend it. To <laughs> it's a lot of symbols. For a layman, for sure, uh, there's no reason to go through Gödel's original paper. Right. <laughs> but I'm not sure. Even I don't. I don't think even experts look at it anymore. I oh, mean, that's it, interesting. That's interesting. It's been fixed up a lot. Uh-huh. Um, well, you know, Gödel made his big discovery in the early part of the 20th century at a time when other guys were also making massive discoveries that pointed out not only new ways of seeing the universe, but also ways in which we really couldn't understand the universe. (laughs) The 20th century just brought all of these almost cataclysmic realizations, and you talk about some of them. There's, of course, there's Gödel. There is also general relativity from Einstein. There's quantum theory, maybe the most mind-boggling, certainty-overthrowing thing that science has ever done. You talk a bit about quantum theory, and you I guess you know your quantum theory, even though you're most, you've mostly been a mathematician, because you've, you've written about quantum computing in detail. Right. So, so I, I had a, in order to write about quantum computing, I had to learn a little bit about quantum, at least. I co-wrote a book called uh, Quantum Computing for Computer Scientists. Um, by the way, that's another thing. That, you know, nobody has really built a quantum computer yet, but theoreticians long before quantum computers exist, theoreticians have discussed it and even discussed limitations of what quantum computers can and cannot do. So again, this is where the theoreticians come before the, the engineers and, and tell you about it. So yeah, quantum mechanics is a very, very strange place to be. <laughs> um, and I spend in my book about 40 pages, and it really is it's mind-boggling. The world around us is not as simple as we think it is. Uh, let me let me just link it up to something that I was talking about before, the self-reference. Anybody who's ever heard anything about the quantum world knows that, you know, you can do an experiment where light is a wave and you can do an experiment where light is a particle. Depending so that, on how you look at it. Depending on how you look at it. Uh, so, so the question is, you know, what is light? Is it a particle or is it a wave? And the answer is, well, it depends on how you look at it. Is it a, is it a wave or is it a particle? Well, it depends on what experiment you set up. So the experimenter becomes part of the experiment. And so there you got this self-reference again. You have this, this some type of self-reference. You are part of the experiment also. <laughs> so it's not only the experimenter is to find out some external you know, reality, but the experimenter becomes part of the experiment. And so again, you have that self-reference, and again, you have some type of strange limitation. Um, and it's it's really it's mind-boggling, and again, it's continuing. I mean, you know, the the the, the crazy things of quantum mechanics pretty much started in 1905, 1903, um, and we're still going on about it. And <laughs> shocking results. Um, what are what are some recent results? Because you know, most of us who learn about it are learning about things that were found. Oh, I think maybe the most recent might be Bell's the proof of Bell's theorem in 1960 something. Right. So Bell's theorem is in 1965, and basically what that says is that entanglement is a really a real thing. So what entanglement says is that particles across the universe can be somehow entangled, and if you measure one, you're going to find out about the other, even though they're far, far apart. Again, that's a very strange thing because, you know, usually our conception of the universe is that, you know, what's here and 
what's close by we can find out about, and what's far away we really can't. And um, quantum theory says, no, there's a concept of entanglement, and things across the universe are... Uh, you know, connected to each other, mm-hmm. entangled with each other. Mm-hmm. Deeply linked. Deeply linked. And that's a problem. It's also a problem with something we were discussing um, about reductionism. In other words, if, if everything is deeply linked with everything else, that puts a stumbling block in front of reductionism. In other words, reductionism is, you know, if I want to figure out how this radio works, I take apart all the parts of the radio and I figure out what each part. And the radio is equal to the sum of its parts. But entanglement says, you know, you can't always do that. You can't always chop the world into little pieces and and look at its little parts because everything could be quantumly connected to everything else. And this is a shocking thing. Now, of course, most of the experiments in quantum mechanics are, are... you know, when when they do entanglement, you know, there's a lot of work to get things to be entangled. But there are some theoretical limitations to it, and it's really shocking. You, you had asked before about a modern result. So there's something yeah. called uh, the quantum eraser experiments, or delayed choice quantum eraser. And what these are, are they're build up of double slit experiments. So double slit experiments are ways of seeing that, that light is made out of waves. Um, but you build it up, and and what this, I don't want to get into the technical details of what it is, um, but what it does, these um, delayed choice quantum eraser experiments, is it shows that our concept of time is all messed up. Cause and effect is all messed up. We can change something in the, in the apparatus of the experiment, which will retroactively change <laughs> the outcome of the experiment. One is truly legitimately allowed to say, you know, hogwash, I don't believe this stuff, but but it's true, and they do experiments, and they show it, and it's really mind-boggling. You know, uh, the funny thing about hearing that is that it didn't it didn't blow my mind because I've been reading about quantum physics long enough and talking to physicists about it that, um, to paraphrase John von Neumann, when he supposedly said to a young colleague, you never understand mathematics, you just get used to it, right. I've gotten used to it. I've gotten used to talking about these things, and it no longer shakes me up. And maybe that's my failing. Uh, maybe, you know, getting habituated is a, is a bad thing. But it strikes me that that's one thing that reason does, that one way reason has coped with its own amazing discoveries century by century, many of which totally overthrow everything we thought we knew before, is we just get used to stuff. Right. And and, and we accommodate it. I mean, so on the one hand, quantum um, mechanics, as you say, is incomprehensible in ordinary terms. On the other hand, we've learned to live with it quite nicely. Uh, not only that, I mean, you know, our microwave <laughs> is built on, you know, it and, and, you know, radar systems use some type of quantum effects all the time. So not only, not only we get used to it, we, um, we learn how to manipulate it and live with it. Um, yeah, yeah. It's an amazing thing. And they are building quantum computers, which use quantum mechanics, um, uh, slowly but surely. And I promise you, they will build it. And, you know, within 20 years, that thing on your desk is going to use some type of, you know, quantum effects, maybe. I, I, I suspect so. I just want to say that that quote from von Neumann that you just said is a tremendous, I mean, I've heard it many times, but it's a tremendous inspiration. Because here's probably the greatest mathematician of the 20th century, um, and see him saying, you know, you yeah, never really understand yeah, mathematics. Yeah. It's just, uh, but it's true. It's true. There are a lot of parts. You you just get used to it. You don't really have a, you can't get, you know, a feel for it. And but you know, you learn how to manipulate it. But you don't. Uh, you're never comfortable with it. Well, that's uh, that reminds me of yet another section of your book on infinity. Um, as a kid, you know, my idea of infinity was, uh, it meant that things go on forever. And that's pretty much where all thinking on my part stopped, because you can't say anything more about that. Right. And at some point, amazingly, mathematicians started saying things and manipulating the properties of infinity and starting to domesticate it in a way. There are greater infinities and lesser infinities. There are countable infinities and uncountable infinities. Again, um, you know, having read that so many times, I guess I'm getting used to it. I don't understand it, 
And, and, and like you said, we're getting used to it in the, in the following sense. You know, younger students, uh, as they get younger and younger, are, are, are hearing this. So, you know, whereas in, let's say, the 50s, this was not taught, you know, till you went to graduate school in mathematics. But nowadays, a high school student can be taught, you know, what the countable infinity is and what uncountable infinity is and stuff like that. And I want to say, it's not just, you know, silly mathematicians, you know, counting the, the how many angels can dance <laughs> on a needle. Um, this a stuff <laughs> is get, gets used all the time. I mean, uh, bridges are built, you know, with, with using calculus, and in the back of every calculus book, there's going to be a discussion about uh, countable infinity versus uncountable infinity. Um, and so it, it's applied, and it, you know you wouldn't want to cross a bridge where the, you know that the engineer said, "Well, I don't believe in this difference between infinities." So you know it's not just silly you know mathematicians making up this stuff. This is the real world application to it, and it's quite amazing. It is. Uh, getting back to uh, quantum computing for a moment. Now um, you have a list of some of the amazing perplexities of, of quantum physics that include the fact that. Properties of objects can have more than one value at a time. In other words, a single object, a particle, might be in several states simultaneously. Okay. Uh, there is no way to determine which value will be observed when that property is measured. There are pairs of properties for which there is an inherent limitation of our ability to know their values. That's the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. You can know one thing, but the more you know about it, the less you know about another, and vice versa. Um, reality depends on how it is measured and I'll just add one that is implied, but, you know, that the behavior of individual quantum entities is statistical. You can't say exactly what they're going to do individually, although en masse they start to obey the odds, <laughs> you know, quite nicely. Which so is amazing. It is amazing, yeah, that you can right. apply statistics to something that is by itself random, you know. Right. Um, <laughs> but but um, quantum computing, it, it, am I right that it's real um, promise lies in that first property that I talked about, the fact that objects can have more than one state at a time, and therefore if you were using, uh, let's say, the state of an atom or a particle as your sort of computational element instead of a transistor, let's say, that you could actually um, have it compute several things at once. Because it, exactly. Right? Exactly. So let's say I'm looking for something in a file. You know, so I do Control-F and I'm searching. So basically, your one microprocessor has to go through the entire file, slowly but carefully look through every aspect. But how about if I can split up and be in many places at one time? If I can be in many places within that file at one time and look for the thing I'm looking for? Well, quantum mechanics says that that's a possibility. You can it's called a superposition. Instead of a position, you're in a superposition. You're in many positions at one time. And quantum mechanics says, hey, that's, that's a possibility. And quantum computing tries to harness this possibility within physics and try to make it usable for, for, for computers. And if you it, succeed, you'll have an incredibly powerful computer. It won't break any of the rules of computing, like the, the famous halting problem, Right. Uh, it's going to be pretty much uh, obedient to all the rules that have been worked out, but it'll be really fast and really powerful. Right. It won't break the halting problem because, like we said, the halting problem cannot be broken by any physical device. There are something called NP-complete problems, which we didn't talk about, and it won't help much with that either. <laughs> so, we'll, we'll, you know, maybe we'll talk about the traveling salesman problem. That's a very, very hard problem, and quantum computers won't be able to help. However... It will help, quantum computers will help with breaking your, your Internet security system. Uh, yes. People wonder whether the NSA has a quantum computer in their basement someplace. They don't, uh, though. Oh, well, I don't know. Have you been there? <laughs> <laughs> I think I trust you scientists to tell me that that's not possible yet. Oh, I wouldn't, really? I wouldn't say that. No, oh, okay, okay. I, I mean, um, I, I know that they haven't built a major quantum computer. They built... Some quantum computer that did, um, you know, IBM did something a couple of summers ago, but I don't know. I mean, okay, uh, okay, very bright people working on it. Okay, so RSA codes, so that RSA encryption. Codes, uh, so you know, when you put in your credit card number, yeah. uh, it's encoded with some math trick, and a quantum computer would be able to break that. 
Um, and people are very take this very seriously. Um, in other words, there's already called a post, you know, post RSA. People are looking at different types of systems, which would be beyond RSA. To defeat even uh, a quantum computer. To defeat even a quantum computer. Yeah, we should uh, just clarify that the thing that keeps code secure, the encryption algorithms, really depend on the fact that breaking the code just would take a huge number of um, computer operations, far more than are practical in uh, you know a normal <laughs> human amount of time. Uh, but if you had a more powerful computer, you could crunch away much, much faster and break the code. Exactly. It's based on, on this simple idea, namely, if I give you two numbers and I ask you to multiply them and get one big number. And however, if I give you a big number and I ask you how do you factor this into two different numbers, that's a much harder problem. So multiplying is an easier problem compared to factoring. And when you give your credit card number, basically they're multiplying and the computer you know, on the receiving end is somehow doing the factoring, but it has a hint of what's going on. But anybody listening in would have a hard time doing the factoring. But again, quantum computers would be able to break that. Um, but there are even harder computer problems. Like oh, yeah. Let's, uh, let's talk about the traveling salesman uh, problem in just one second. But I wanted to get back to the question I originally wanted to ask about uh, quantum computing. So given the fact that um, the behavior of, say, individual particles or quantum entities uh, is unpredictable, only... In large groups, when the laws of large numbers take over, can you really uh, say what's going to happen only as an ensemble? How do you deal with that in, in quantum computing? Um, technically. <laughs> 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 what, what there are is a, there's a lot of probabilities in quantum computing, and you have to keep track of what those probabilities I are. I see, I see. Uh, and uh, no, it's, it's, it's a technical problem. So you just choose a degree of statistical reliability, and you, you accept that result. Exactly. Now, what you do sometimes is you, you run the result a few times. Uh -huh. Engineers and quantum computer scientists are quite aware of this, and they, they do have to take it into account, mm -hmm. that, 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 that you're getting statistical answers rather than what's called deterministic answers. Right, right. Um, so, yeah, the traveling salesman problem, a very easy problem to describe. Very, I can a very it. difficult problem to solve. Right. So it goes as follows. Let's say there's a traveling salesman who goes from, you know, city to city. Uh, he wants to go, let's say, to 10 different cities to sell his wares. And he doesn't want to hit any city uh, again. So the question is as follows. What's the shortest way of doing that? Well, you have to go through it. And if you have 10 cities, you have 10 choices for the first city, you have nine choices for the second city, and you have eight choices for the third city. So these are giving you all your possible routes, how many possible routes. And you have what's called 10 factorial, 10 times 9 times 8 times 7 times da 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 da, -da times 3 times 2 times 1 uh, possible routes. And that's very, very nice. And a computer, I don't know what that is, that's a couple of million, and a computer can check through, all through those 10 factorial possible routes to find the shortest one. You're looking for the shortest possible route to go and hit every, ten, every one of those 10 cities. Right. So that doesn't sound so bad. doesn't sound so bad. And, you know, the truth is, if you ever have a summer trip and you, you want to go here, here, and here, and you've got five different places to go, in your head you do them. You, you figure out what the shortest possible route so you don't waste time doing it. Okay, so now the question is, what happens if I have 100 cities? I want to go to, let's say, the 100 most populous cities in, in the United States to sell my wares. Or uh, if you remember that George Clooney, Clooney movie, uh, Up in the Air. Oh, yeah. Right, so he goes to uh, like 100 different cities. Now, let's say you wanted to go to, the, to visit these 100 cities, but you wanted to do them in the shortest possible route. So you'd have to look for the shortest possible route. Question, how many routes are there? So instead of having 10 factorial, because you have 10 possibilities, 9 possibilities, 8 possibilities, you'd have 100 factorial. So there's 100 possibilities for the first city, 99 possibilities for the second city, 98, 98 possibilities for the third city. You, you, have, a, you have a drinking song going on. <laughs> okay, down to one. And the question is, how long will a computer take to do this? And... Whenever I teach this, I ask students, I ask you know, people how long does it take, and I never get more than a couple of minutes because we're not used to 
waiting more than a couple of minutes for a computer to solve. And and like we said, you know, for 10 cities, a computer can do it in three seconds flat. Right. So so how long could it possibly take for 100 cities? You know, uh, yeah, okay, 10 times three. And the answer is shockingly, shockingly long. Okay? And you could just sit with a calculator and type 10 to 100 times 99 times 98, 97. Um, you get this humongous number. Or you can go to Google and type in 100 factorial equals, and it gives you, it gives you the answer. You, you've got the number in your book. I, I got the number in my book because, and, and I go through this. It takes this, up a chunk the, of a page. Right, a, a page, because people really don't believe, you know, that the number could possibly be that long. But I just want to say, when you multiply a number by, let's say, 99, you're adding two digits to the number. So you get this, I don't know, 151-digit number. Right. And you say to yourself, well, okay, that's how many possible routes, but how long will it take? So you say, okay, my computer can do uh, a million routes in a second. Okay, so fine. So how long will it take? And then I go through the calculation, and I come out to 10 to the 142 centuries. <laughs> that's, that's 142 zero. you know, one with 142 zeros after it, centuries. Much longer than the age of the universe. Much longer than the age of the universe. Much longer than the age of the universe will happen. You know, like, <laughs> we'll never get the answer to that question. No matter how fast they calculate? Right. No matter how fast they calculate. Now, whenever I teach this, I always get the following, you know, one student always in the back who's taking notes with his Apple computer saying, yeah, but, you know, I use an Apple computer. My computer can do that. <laughs> <laughs> Or, or, or I use Unix, so, you know, we don't have that type of problem. We can do that. And, and, and I go through the book, and I explain that that's not true. And even if your computer was 10,000 times faster than the modern computer is, so you take 10 to the 142 centuries and you divide it by, you know, 10,000, 10, you get... <laughs> 10 to the 138 And even a, even a, a really great quantum computer, I mean, there are right. limits. Uh, I've, I've heard descriptions say that even if you had a computer that uh, essentially had all the computing elements, a, a number of computing elements equal to all the particles in the universe, right. you so could the, not so, right. solve so, this in a practical amount of time. Right. So physicists tell us that the, the number of particles in the universe is 10 to the 80. Uh, okay. Right. So if every one of those particles was a computer, <laughs> uh, you still would not be able to tell to give it this answer. And again, uh, the, the the question is not a strange question. You know, uh, again, uh, George Clooney goes to visit a hundred different cities. I want to know, you know, what's the shortest way he can go see, go visit all these hundred cities? Um, and there's no possible, there's no way you can get that. So this means that not only is George Clooney incapable of sort of economizing his travel perfectly. But the many companies who would like to do that, all the transportation companies, all the supply chain networks right. around the world that would like to do this, all the airlines, can't do this. Right. And what do they do? So, so first of all, hopefully they don't deal with you know, large problems. So, for example, I don't know, maybe if you're dealing with six or seven cities, you can, and you're working with Travelocity, and you say, okay, I want to <laughs> yeah. find a But if you're a route. big airline carrier, you've got a lot of cities. Right. So, so, so they aren't. So what these problems show up all over, and so there's something called approximation algorithms, which give you answers, and they take a short amount of time, but they don't always give you the best answer. They give you close enough to it. Not the best, but something close. And, and computer scientists study these approximation algorithms, and they find some problems have good approximation algorithms. Some of them don't. And... Um, these things show up all over, and you can't just ignore it. You can't just say, hey, look, this is going to take me 10 to the 142 centuries. I can't do it. Forget about it. Um, you know, businesses want, want to know the answer. Well, we unfortunately don't have time to go into all the wonderful examples in your book of things that are extremely hard to solve, you know, practically impossible, things that are impossible to solve, and things that are seemingly impossible to understand, even though... We can uh, talk, about talk about them and solve problems right, right. <laughs> in those domains. But I, I, before the interview's up, I do want to get to some big questions you ask in your book um, because uh, you have a philosophical bent for a computer scientist slash mathematician. You are clearly a very philosophically minded guy, and uh, you pose these at the beginning. Um, 
and they are natural questions as you contemplate all of these difficult problems. Um, how is it that the human mind can understand any part of the universe? Specifically, um, why is mathematics so good at describing uh, science and the universe? I mean, a lot of people would say mathematics is the one perfect description of anything that we have, the one description that doesn't involve any fuzziness. Two times three is equal to six. There's no. Uh, That's it. Yeah. Right. Who can argue with that? Who can argue with that? Yeah. I, I get your drift. Namely, in some sense, mathematics is somehow um, the divine language, and everything follows that. Yeah. Um, the answer is: How can we know anything about the universe? Well, we we all, you know, learn rules about things. Uh, we drop a fork; the fork is going to hit the ground a little bit later. Um, we get that as a little kid. Um, we can know something about the universe. I, I think the purpose of the book is probably saying we can't know everything about the universe. Um, as for mathematics as a language, it, it's a big question. It's a big question. And I go through a few different uh, examples of where mathematical stuff came before the physics. That's right, yeah. Physics uh, uses mathematics, but many times uh, mathematics came before physics, and it's it's a shocking result. And it made just, it possible. I mean, could Einstein have come up with relativity without having some... Uh, mathematics around four dimensions. Uh, Yeah, non-Euclidean geometry or or four-dimensional space. Right. The the other classic example is um, imaginary numbers. So, you know, people were asking, what's the square root of negative one? And the answer is, there's no square root of negative one. The square (laughs) is always positive. Yeah. And about 500 years ago, some guys started playing and saying, you know, let's say there was a square root of a negative one. And we'll call it I, and we'll, you know, let's see what properties. And, And they spent a good 300, 400 years playing with this. And then years, years later, um, when quantum mechanics needs to describe, um, some physical phenomenon, they find out, hey, these complex imaginary numbers, complex numbers or imaginary numbers, they work perfectly. Let's let's use them. Now that's an example of something where the physics came before the math. Uh, math, the math comes before physics, yeah. And the, and the question is, why does it work? And I, I try to give some type of answer in the book. Namely, I say, look, we get our intuition of uh, our mathematical intuition from the physical universe. So if I have two oranges and then I have three oranges, I have five oranges. So that's a physical phenomenon, which we generate our mathematics. So we learned mathematics by looking at the physical world. Okay, that's that's one possible answer. It doesn't give a total good answer because there's a lot of part of, part of mathematics that has nothing to do with physics. Like I said, infinite set theory. Well, we don't have any infinites in this world. And it's a finite world. We have 10 to the, 10 to the 80 particles. Uh, it's a finite world. There is no infinite set. Not so, only that, but I mean, a mathematician, um, and some this actually applies to some, could shut him or herself away in a darkened room and continue to explore and discover things without ever, ever interacting with the physical world. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so uh, Fermi's last theorem was proved by Andrew Wiles, and basically he did shut himself up in his attic for seven and a half years, and it has no physical application whatsoever. And he proved an amazing 300-year-old theorem. So sometimes it looks like mathematics has no connection with physics. And on the other hand, you know, there are clearly examples where it does. For example, classical geometry. You know, you draw a straight line in the sand and you say, okay, you know, what's the area of this place? What's the area of that place? And geometry comes from the word geo, the earth, uh, metri, measuring the earth. Oh, yes. That's where it came from. Um, uh, geometry came from Egypt, where they were splitting up the fields, you know, uh, for inheritance laws. Oh, yeah, speaking of etymology, of course, uh, a word you have to use a lot in this book, reason, rationality. Rational comes from ratio, right. the idea of, you know, orderly ratios between numbers, right. uh, that this is the actual essence of orderly uh, logical thought is mathematical thought. So I'm going to throw it back at you. What do you think, Nussen? Uh, uh, do you think mathematics is simply something we abstract from the messy physical world? Or is it something that almost resides apart from and in some ways uh, above, and I don't mean this in any kind of physical, mystical way, 
but you know above physical reality or behind physical reality okay so so that school of thought that thinks that mathematics is somehow independent of human beings is called either Platonism or realism. Mathematical I, realism, yeah. While I cannot say it doesn't exist, in <laughs> other words, how, do I, how can I know that the number three doesn't somewhere, well, again, it's not a physical thing, but that it, I cannot say it doesn't exist. I, there's no reason for me to say it does exist. Well, it certainly exists in this conversation. It exists in human discourse, and it exists as a tool. So it has an existence. I mean, it's not a physical existence. Right, and we can talk about unicorns and Mickey Mouse also. Oh, wait a minute now. (laughs) Uh, I mean, the number three, don't you think, I mean, wouldn't you say it has an existence? I'm not trying to talk you into some kind of extreme Platonism. I'm just saying, don't you think, um, you know, conceptual things are real, you know? If Um, if not, what are we doing, you know? Oh, I well I I'm I'm going to get angry phone calls from this. Um but, <laughs> but but you know for example I can talk about interesting properties of the unicorn. For example, a unicorn doesn't have two 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 um horns. It only has one horn. So that's an exact property I have <laughs> okay, okay. of a unicorn. It uh, has got, four four legs. I'll uh, bite on that. I, yeah, that it's real to that extent. It's real as a concept. So let's ask the following question. You know, if the number three exists, does the number negative three exist? Yeah. Is real? See, I th- I'd say yes. I mean, these things have real impact. They they have as much impact on us often as, or more than physical objects. And, you know, I don't care. I could care less about the rock out in my driveway right now. But uh, numbers, boy, those are affecting me constantly. They're they're pulling you down to the earth. Well, they're they're not. Gravity's pulling you down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But gravity is described by numbers. Right. Okay. Um, anyways, I, I have yet to make a Platonist than to a non-Platonist, and I don't think there's anybody um, who's a non-Platonist. I'm gonna. I was just curious how you, as someone who cares deeply about mathematics, I, I, feels I about it. I don't see that there's a reason to believe that you know Plato's attic exists and oh all yeah, the, all, all the ideas are neatly planned. And, that there's and, some kind of place. Right. right. Well, well, it's definitely not a physical place, yeah. but there, there's some type of place. Let me just put it another way. You know, there are many mathematicians who who came up with theorems that we learned later on that you know they needed to be tweaked and they needed to be improved. Uh, we talked about this before. Gödel's um, incompleteness theorem. It was fixed up by the Gödel-Rosser theorem. It was fixed up. You know, a few different. You know, over the past seventy years, it was fixed up. So, question. In Girdle, in Plato's Attic, which theorem does you know? Which which one of Girdle's theorems is there? You know, the perfect one, the imperfect. Yeah, no, one? no. The idea that of Plato's that the perfect essences, the ideals exist. That's something I, I don't know. That sounds kind of um, goofy to me. But the fact that that conceptual objects, that language, that conversation, that all the so- sort of things we call mental have no existence whatsoever, uh, that I, I'd find very hard to accept. I agree. Um, but again, you have to say they exist as a linguistic or a mental construct. I'm not sure they exist independently of human, human existence. Uh, right. um, there are many cultures that didn't come up with some, you know, things that we think are, think are, 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 are easy and, and obvious. But then again, there's this haunting way in which um, the universe, the nature, often confirms those mental intuitions, those mental findings. So, you know, we have the Higgs boson discovery a couple of years ago. Right. Something that was dreamed up 50 years ago turns out to actually exist, you know? <laughs> exactly. And that keeps happening. Right. So, and there are many parts of mathematics which don't show up. You know, yes, that's true. But the not ones yet. that do not get yet. a lot of press. Yep, yep. not yet they haven't. <laughs> I get the impression that um, when it comes to uh, gauging the actual power of rationality, of reason, to understand everything, that you might be in sympathy with um, Arthur Eddington, the great uh, British oh, physicist. Sure. Want to tell, uh, tell us that little uh, parable? I just want to say, Eddington, Eddington discusses, uh, forget about talking about mathematics existing, he discusses whether or not certain laws exist, physical laws. Um, but he's a, he was a very deep, deep thinker who thought about these issues. But he tells a very interesting story. He tells a story about a 
a man who studies fish, and he had a fancy word which I can't think Ichthyologist. of. Ichthyologist. Um, and this man had a net that only had two inches. Holes that were two inches Hole, wide. Holes was two inches. And so he would throw this net into the sea, and he would pull out fish. And the, all the fish that he pulled out were bigger than two inches, because all the way. And so he would say, hey, look, there's no fish that are uh, smaller than two inches in the sea. And, of course, that's not true. It's just what instruments you're using to study the world. So if you're using particular instruments to study the world, you expect the answers to get there. It's, again, the self-reference. Well, you know, you're, you're part of the world that you're studying. Um, so he said, look, you know, if you threw in a, a net with only one-inch things, you'd get different responses. And so he's making the same analogy with physics. In other words, you're you're thinking about things in a certain way, you're, you're looking at the world in a certain way, and you expect certain results, but there, there's larger. Now, I, I don't want to get into the hokey-pokey over there. In other words, I don't think that if you meditate or something like that, um, you're going to get good physical resu- physics results. You're not going to find out much about the physical universe if you meditate or, I don't know, you know, get high or something like that. But he does have a good point, namely, we investigate the physical world in a certain way, and we should expect to get certain results. And perhaps there are other ways to in- investigate the physical world also to get other results, too. And, and, and as, as the book tries to show, is our method of investigating the physical world is somehow limited. And so... Um, well, I, I think I'd like to propose that we close with a little reading uh, from very near the end of your book that should be a rebuke to anybody who accuses you of lacking heart uh, or feeling. Uh, There's the passage that begins, There is no cause to be despondent. Okay. There is no cause to be despondent because we are unable to see beyond the bounds outlined in this book. We human beings already live beyond reason. The world humans inhabit is not the cold, heartless world of reason, logic, mathematics, and science. Our minds do not live in a world of stones, carbon-based life forms, and molecules following habitual laws of physics. Rather, we all have feelings and emotions that are not dictated by reason and logic. We have a sense of beauty, wonder, ethics, and values that are beyond reason and defy rational explanation. We appreciate beautiful art and music for no logical reason. While contemplating a mountain range, we are full of awe and wonder. We try to avoid performing deeds that are wrong, even though they might be beneficial to us. So we have some type of ethics. The time we spend with our loved ones is a treasured, even though there is no logical necessity for it. We feel pain when we are distant from our loved ones. Our decisions are not made on the basis of logic and reason. Instead, we use aesthetics, practical experience, moral inclination, gut impulses, emotions, intuitions, and feelings. In this sense, every one of us already transcends the bounds of reason. And you wouldn't have it any other way? (laughs) No, absolutely not. I mean, but it doesn't even matter what I want, because I'm just saying that, you know, we're humans. We're we're first humans. We're we're, we're human beings, and we have many other things. Some of us try to be scientists and mathematicians and, you know, uh, guide part of our lives to follow dictates of reason. But, you know, in essence, we are humans. And uh, We were talking about Gödel before, and Gödel has this beautiful line, which I just want to uh, mention. He says as follows, The meaning of the world is the separation of wish and fact. Wish is a force as applied to the thinking beings to realize something. A fulfilled wish is a union of wish and fact. The meaning of the whole world is the separation and the union of fact and wish. In other words, there was the ultimate logician reasoner, and he says, no, this part of being human is to desire things to want things, and we lack what we want, and that gives us meaning, and and we sometimes get what we want, and that gives us happiness, and things like that. It's a beautiful line. And, uh, you know, almost ironically, reason is in some ways a kind of wish itself. Right. A wish to know, a wish to... Control. Control, or a wish to be part of, to, to bond with, you know, an otherwise... Um, bewildering world. 
So yeah, that that was very nice to quote Girdle because uh, I was I had read that and wanted you to explain it for me. So thank you, thank you for this whole conversation. Oh, thank you, thank you. It was a, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Nussen Yanofsky is a professor in the Department of Computer and Information Science at Brooklyn College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. His latest book, the one we were talking about today, is The Outer Limits of Reason, What Science, Mathematics, and Logic Cannot Tell Us. He's also the co-author of Quantum Computing for Computer Scientists. I'm Robert Polly. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. Thanks for joining us. We will be back on the air on this station next week. And uh, in the meantime, we are always online at 7thAvenueProject.com, on iTunes, on SoundCloud, and uh, through your favorite mobile podcast app. Many ways to listen. Just listen. Okay? See you next week. Okay.